Well, good morning to our guest. My name is Alex. I'm one of the pastor elders here, and uh, Tim Merwin is our lead pastor. And this morning, I have the privilege of bringing the Word of God to you. So the title of this sermon is Wisdom for Steadfastness. Wisdom for Steadfastness. Seven-year-old Pepper, or better known as Little Boy, lived in a small town called O'Hare, California. Little boy's best friend is his dad, Mr. Busby. And they did a lot of things together. They went on many adventures as they read books. Little boy and his dad were very, very, very close One day, little boy's dad was sent off to war, and this put little boy into one of his greatest trials of his life. In his disparity, he ends up getting help from a local priest. Little boy was such in despair that he would do anything, literally anything, to bring back his dad to his home. The priest told him that if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, then you can move a mountain. But if you have one bit of doubt, the priest said, your faith won't work. So with Childlike faith as a seven-year-old, he stands in front of the mountain and he does this to try and move the mountain. He does this. In coincidence, the little town of O'Hare, California, experience an earthquake. (laughs) And as the ground shook underneath his feet, little boy stood exhausted. One of the town street vendors, the lady said, now I've been working in the street market for over 35 years. I swear that mountain was further to the right. Well, in our text this morning, James says that if we we lack wisdom, we are to ask God in faith, but with no doubting. Why do we need wisdom? Wisdom, in the midst of trials, can help us be steadfast. Or, wisdom, in the midst of trial, can help us remain steadfast. But when we go to God for wisdom, we are to ask him with childlike faith. Here's the overarching theme of my sermon this morning. As Christians, we are to remain steadfast by the wisdom God provides when our faith is being tested by trials of various kinds. 
You've heard it said before that if you live long enough, you will experience trials of various kinds. The trials of of life are meant to test our faith. Last week's sermon. Trials can strengthen our faith in God or it can weaken our faith in God when we don't look to him for help. The bad news of life is that everyone is going to go through various kinds of trials. The good news of life is that God grants us wisdom to remain steadfast as we go through the trials of life. So what do we need to do to get this wisdom from God to remain steadfast in the trials of life? Well, James tells us the answer. The answer is simple. We ask God. So point number one, to remain steadfast, we ask God for wisdom. We please look with me at verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Our text this morning is clearly connected to verses 3 and 4, where it says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So before we dive further into the sermon, note the word steadfast in verses 3 and 4. And verse 12 in our text this morning. Note the word lack in verses 4, last week's sermon, and verse 5 this week. Note the word test in verses 3 last week, verse 12 this week. There's also one key term that we'll cover at the end. So our passage based on the literary context, is still in the context of trials and suffering. Trials that test our faith, that produces steadfastness. And remember last week, the effects of steadfastness makes us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so what does steadfast mean in our context in chapter, in, in chapter 1, verses 5 through 12? Well, according to the ESV study Bible notes, steadfast means a life of faithful endurance amid troubles and, and afflictions. Verse 12 says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And so the question that I want to put out to you, church, to us, church, to chew on and meditate on and think through is this. How do we remain steadfast in the midst of trials? Well, the simple answer is is to ask God for wisdom in the midst of confusing and painful circumstances. Now, since all of us are still in process, we are still being perfected, and we are still incomplete, therefore, we lack. We lack wisdom. 
James says in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. Do you hear the promise? And it will be given him. It will be given him. Now, it's important to define what the word wisdom means. We have the worldview of wisdom, as in our culture, and we have a biblical view of wisdom. So what is wisdom? If we lack wisdom to remain steadfast in the trials that we are currently in, or future trials, then what is this wisdom that helps us remain steadfast? In the Old Testament, King Solomon puts it this way. In Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6, he says this, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So King Solomon equates wisdom with understanding and knowledge. Well, what does that word mean to the original readers of James' epistle, this letter? Well, for the Jewish Christians, the dispersed Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, they would have recognized wisdom as the understanding and practical life skills that were necessary to live a life for God's glory under persecution, rejection, and poverty. You see, church, What's not in view here is philosophical wisdom so that you can reason with God in the midst of your trials and your suffering. What's not in view here is academic wisdom so you can argue with God about your trials and your suffering. If you are currently in the test of poverty, it's not wisdom to know how to win the lottery. And if you're going through a major trial in your life, it's not wisdom to go around the trials. Any of you lack wisdom? Any of you lack knowledge and understanding in how to live your life to God's glory while you are suffering with chronic illness or loss of a job or dealing with prodigal sons and daughters or difficult situations at school, at work. Ask God for wisdom and he will give you wisdom generously without finding fault, it says, without reproach. Church, wisdom gives us the, the capacity to understand our trials and its purposes. They are meant to test our faith, to strengthen our faith in God. They are meant to draw us to a deeper relationship with God, to a deeper dependence on God. They are meant to purify us and to perfect us. They are meant to mature us in our faith in Christ Jesus. They are meant to make us complete. Christians need wisdom in order to rejoice in trials. Wisdom is God-given, God-centered discernment to help us navigate through, not around, life's most difficult times. Such 
Wisdom from God helps us to be joyous and submissive to God in the life, in the trials of life. You see, trials can have the potential to cloud our spiritual understanding that can drive us to seek help elsewhere other than God. This is why God offers us wisdom in the midst of our trials. It is for knowledge and understanding that keeps us steadfast. Listen, if you have lived long enough and you have seen that life brings constant trials and tests, yet God does not leave us alone, does he? He gives us wisdom to remain steadfast. He doesn't leave us alone to flounder around and fail. He's with us every step of the way. And when we ask him for wisdom, he's faithful to give in the midst of trials. And he says this, James, in, in, at the end of, of our passage this morning, for those who remain steadfast, who would stand the test, will get a reward. And more on that later. So to become perfect and complete, we must go to God for wisdom. I love how James puts it. He says, if any of you lack wisdom. He said, James knows that everyone needs wisdom. You need wisdom, I need wisdom. But he says this in this way, if any of you lack wisdom, I love that because when he puts it, when he frames that question in that way, it makes us discern our hearts. Do I need wisdom? That means any of us, we all lack wisdom, and we can all go to God the Father in prayer and ask him for wisdom. Right. Listen, if you've just failed a final exam and you failed a class, or you just got laid off, or your wife just died of cancer, or your beloved grandma who took care of you every day of your life just took her last breath, or your baby is fading away in your loving arms, or you just found out that you have two months to live and you don't know where your family is going to go and what they're going to do, and you don't know how to lead them in the two months that you have left, and you're at the end of your wits, ask God for wisdom. And he will give it to you without reproach. And he's generous. Your faith is beginning to wane and you're beginning to lose hope and doubt begins to cloud your heart and your mind and you don't know what to do. Ask God for wisdom. If you're not a believer this morning and you're going through trials after trials after trials, then the word of God says that you are without hope. You are without hope. All the resources that this world has to offer will only be temporary. 
Though the test of prosperity, though the test of failing health or failed relationships are real and painful, your greatest trial is still yet to come. You see, the wages of sin is death, and you will stand on trial before a holy God. And because of your sin, your, your verdict is going to be guilty, and your sentence, death and eternity in hell. And by God's grace, today can be the day of your salvation, and you can be saved from that death and eternal punishment in hell. Only believe in Jesus Christ and make him Lord of your life, and his atoning sacrifice on the cross will save you from the ultimate judgment and condemnation that awaits you. Believe in him, and you will have hope. Because after this painful life, you will have eternal life, an eternal life that will know no hurt, no pain, no suffering, and no death. Church, if you're under a trial right now, and you're at the end of the rope, and you just don't know what to do, ask God for wisdom and understanding and knowledge and how to glorify him through it, and he will give it to you. James says that when we ask him for wisdom humbly, that he gives us wisdom generously without reproach. Our God is omniscient. Therefore, church, that means that his storehouse of wisdom is infinite and unlimited. God will give us wisdom abundantly without finding fault. God is not a respecter of man. As believers, he gives wisdom to anyone who asks humbly. Why? Because he wants to give us wisdom to help us remain steadfast in our trials and our sufferings. When we ask in humility, he gives it to us generously, and he promises to give it. The end of verse 5 there. And it will be given him. And it will be given him or her. Look with me at verses 6 through 8. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James' instruction to us today is crystal clear, isn't it? When we ask, we are to ask in faith with no doubting. If receiving wisdom is a promise when we ask, then we should ask with, without doubting, but with childlike faith and full confidence. This confidence should not only be when we exercise our faith in asking, but it should be in our faith in God who's more than able and who is more than powerful to give us the wisdom to remain steadfast in the midst of trials. We can ask confidently because God tells us that when we ask, he will not criticize us or chide us or or correct us or reproach us for asking. Why? 
because he wants us to go to him. He, he, he doesn't want us to hesitate to go to him. He wants to give us wisdom so that we can endure and withstand the test. When we ask God, we ask God in faith. What does that mean, asking in faith? What does that even look like? You don't want to assume we all know that. What does it look like to ask God in faith? It means, having un, it means having settled trust and confidence in God based on his character or faithfulness and his fulfilled promises revealed in Scripture. We are to ask God like a child does with childlike faith. Have you ever heard of a little girl asking her, Daddy, Daddy, can you give me the moon? The child in, in her young age believes that her daddy can give her the moon, that bright thing up in the sky. That's childlike faith. That's how we are to ask. I am a DIY guy. Are any of you DIYers? Okay. We are the ones who like to do the work ourselves because we like to save the money if it's possible to do it ourselves, right? When Jackson and I do a project together, we often, I'd love to say we always, but we often pause and pray to ask God for wisdom in, in, and knowledge in knowing how to do something. And wisdom for safety, I don't want him to get hurt. I don't want to get hurt while we work on a project. Church, would you allow me to say this? When we pray, God grants us wisdom 200% of the time. And he never has ever corrected us or criticized us for asking. Listen, church, if God can grant us wisdom to do a break job at home, how much more will he give us wisdom in, in the midst of trials so that we can bear upon the pressures and the pain and the suffering? How much more would he give us wisdom to know how to glorify him and trust in him in the midst of our trials and suffering so that we can remain steadfast and be that man or that woman that James says, Blessed is that man who remains steadfast. This is who our God is. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Alex's translation, if you ask with doubt, don't expect to get anything. <laughs> That's what James is saying. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The author, James, grew up in Nazareth, which is a little town situate, situated on top of a mountain. Nazareth is about 19 miles from the Sea of Galilee, and it's about 19 miles from the Mediterranean Sea. It's really like from this parking lot to Playlinda Beach, that's how far it is. Do you think James was familiar with rolling waves driven by the wind? This is a picture of the Mediterranean Sea at Caesarea. 
Just to the right of that picture is where the Apostle Paul landed during his second missionary journey. And if you look at that near the middle of that picture, there's a rectangular body of water. That is King Herod's ancient swimming pool. And if you look at that swimming pool between the horizon, you see some white caps of waves that are breaking, driven by the wind. We, weren't, we were there, actually, during a beautiful day, and so the wind wasn't as strong, but you can see that's the Mediterranean Sea. The Sea of Galilee, this picture was taken at sunrise, and if you look at the water, it's a bit choppy, but at night, you see that the water is somewhat glassy. By the way, the city of lights is the city of Tiberias, which is the city that King Herod Agrippa strengthened and enforced. But when the wind blows, it creates waves. But when the wind isn't blowing, it is like glass. Dr. John Delancey, our tour guide, told us this, that two years ago he was there where that picture was taken when a strong wind came up and created waves big enough for them to body surf in the Sea of Galilee. Now, if you're not familiar geographically, the Sea of Galilee is a lake. It's a fresh water lake landlocked. And so when we ask God for wisdom and have doubt, we will receive it. Or that if we ask God for wisdom and we have doubt that we will receive it or God will, will be good enough to give it, we are like the waves of the sea being blown around by the wind. We are unstable and unsettled in our faith in God. A person who doubts God's goodness, ability, and willingness to give wisdom dishonors God. This person is unsure whether God is good or whether he will do good. And if a person asks God for wisdom and has doubt, then James says, well, don't expect to receive any, as I said earlier. Here's what gets me. Do you ever have doubts when you ask God? Does your faith ever weak? Has it ever become weak in the midst of trials and suffering and you're asking God? I do, and I have, and I will multiple times. I've had doubts, and my faith has weakened during trials. So what do we do when our faith is weak? What do we do when we have doubts in our minds when we come to prayer in God? It's simple, church. Ask God to strengthen your faith and root out any doubt out of your heart and mind. We need to be actively rooting out any doubt and unbelief and at the same time asking God to give us the faith that knows no doubt. We need to remind ourselves of who God is and his character of proven faithfulness. Simon Jay kissed the mocker in his 
Commentary of James says this, when the father of the epileptic said to Jesus, I do believe, help overcome my unbelief. Jesus heard his prayer of faith. He healed the man's son by casting out the demon. Note, however, that this man struggled with his weak faith and asked for help, and he received it. You see, James isn't talking to someone like us, but rather to people who are double-minded and unstable in all of their ways. He's talking about a people who continue to doubt God's power and promises, and when they do, their lives are unsettled and unstable in all their ways. Listen, when God does not grant wisdom for trials, it's not because he wasn't unwilling, it's because the person who was asking had doubts. He's a good God. Therefore, church, when we go to God in prayer and ask him for wisdom, let us ask in faith, in childlike faith, and believe that we will receive it in our times of need. This is one way that we can remain steadfast in the midst of trials and suffering. Point number two, I have two points These two points will go a lot faster, so relax. (laughs) Point two, to remain steadfast, we boast in our exaltation or our humiliation. What does that mean? Look with me at verses 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. How else can we remain steadfast in the midst of trials and suffering? We boast in our exaltation, or we boast in our humiliation. You see, the dispersed Christians would have encountered poverty. They knew what poverty was. They had left all, they had lost all of their material possessions when they were displaced. They had to work any type of low-paying jobs only to survive. They experienced rejection and unfair treatment The economic conditions were dismal for these brothers and sisters in Christ. And James instructs the brother to boast or glory or rejoice in his exaltation. James instructed the the lowly brother or the brother in humble circumstances to boast or to glory or to rejoice in his humiliation or his exaltation. And so... The question should be in our minds, how can a Christian of poor economic means remain steadfast in the midst of various kinds of trials? What does that mean? What does it look like to boast or glory or rejoice in our exaltation as a Christian of poor economic means? It's simple. It's to not look at 
the lack of our material possessions, but to look at our spiritual treasures. He sees himself as the son of the king of kings. This poor, lowly brother sees himself as the son of God the Father, younger brother or younger sister of Jesus Christ. He sees himself as having royal blood that is flowing through his veins. He sees himself as an heir to God or heir of God's kingdom. Verse 10 says, and the rich brother in his humiliation. Now, the Bible, Bible scholars differ on who this rich man is. Some Bible scholars would say this rich man is an unbeliever. And other Bible interpreters, Bible scholars would say, no, he's a believer. What, what do we do? How do we handle this? Well, I want to submit to you. I'm not going to lean on one side or the other, but I want to tease out, exegete what the point that James is making here. So what's the point? Notice that James doesn't address the riches, the riches of man's possession, but the person who possesses them. I didn't say that right. But notice that James doesn't address his material possessions. But he is addressing the man who possesses the riches, the material possessions. How can the rich man boast or glory or rejoice in his humiliation? Here's how. By realizing that wealth and material possessions do not carry an advantage over the poor. Wealth and material possessions are temporary and bring no advantage before God. When death comes, the poor and the rich are equal in standing before God. So for us today, the rich brother should boast in God's mercy and grace because he has been made to understand with wisdom and knowledge that true riches are the heavenly treasures, not the earthly treasures that moth and rust destroy, and, and thieves break in and steal. It's been said that one of the greatest trials that Christians can have is the test of adversity or the test of prosperity. Well, how are you doing in your test of adversity? If you're not doing well, then take your focus off of your circumstances because they are only temporary. So fix your eyes on Jesus who will deliver you through your circumstances and bring you into a life where you will never have a need. And this is eternal, church. Now, by saying this, I want to quickly say this. If you're in the midst of suffering, if you're in the midst of your most difficult time, in your life. I'm not minimizing or dis, dis, dismissing your suffering, but sometimes it's helpful to be reminded to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ and not in our present circumstances. If you're experiencing the test of prosperity, be careful. Be careful that you don't become self-sufficient. Material possessions, comfort, have a way of drawing you away from God towards self-independence. Death is the great equalizer, isn't it? 
all believers will stand before a holy God, equal in standing. So by rejoicing in our exaltation or our humiliation, we will remain steadfast when we encounter various kinds of trial. Point number three, I'm going to try and bring this to a close. When we remain steadfast, we receive the crown of life. This is a hallelujah moment, church. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Amen. Don't you want to be this blessed man or woman? I do. So who is this blessed man or woman? Well, this blessed man or woman is the man who finds his happiness in God and not in his earthly possessions or lack thereof. The blessed man does not find his happiness in a a life free of various kinds of trials. This man may be poor economically, meek in his character, persecuted in his circumstances, but when he remains steadfast under trial, James says he is blessed. This blessed man or woman might have just lost his or her job or just received the news of cancer or have an estranged relationship with his sons or daughters. This blessed person could be bullied at school or at work. This blessed man or woman could be experiencing marital trials. But if he or she remains steadfast and withstand the test, blessed is that man or woman. You might be thinking, well, that sounds great for people who can remain steadfast under trial and withstand tests, but I'm far from being that blessed person right now. How do we consolidate that? How do we gain a godly perspective of God's word today? Look closely at verse 12 with me. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when, for when he has stood the test. Notice that James doesn't say for if, for if he has stood the test. No, he says for when he has stood the test. The word when is a key word in our text. In verse 2, this is the bad news. James says, when you meet various trials of various kinds, it's not if, but when you meet trials of various kinds. But praise God, for in James verse 12, he says, for when he has stood the test, not if, But when he has stood the time, church, this speaks of divine enablement. 
You see, God wants you to come to him so that you may receive strength to endure and persevere through your trials. God promises to never leave you nor forsake you. God is not interested in seeing you or us waver and fail. He wants us to endure. He wants us to overcome and triumph, not in our own abilities and strength, but the wisdom he provides by his divine power and enablement, church. Why is the believer who perseveres and endures during a time of testing blessed? Because he will receive the crown of life. This is a promise. We cannot earn the crown of life. It is a gift. It is free. And it's by grace. The only thing that God asks us is to remain faithful and to love him wholeheartedly through our trials. So church, let us forsake being double-minded. Let us trust in him alone. I'm going to wrap this up, I swear. In the first century, the original readers of this letter would have connected the crown of life to the crown of wreath that an athlete receives by winning a competition. Athletes don't receive the victory crown without competing and until the race is over, right? And so athletes have to endure the pain of training. They have to make their bodies submit for a specific purpose, and they have to train hard, training for months and often years, and then win a victory crown. You know something about that crown wreath? Is that one day it's going to wither and die. For us today who remain steadfast, by God's power and by his divine enablement. When the trials are over, we get to have something infinite of value. We get the crown of life. It will be a life that knows no sin, no suffering, and no death. We will not have jewels on our crowns, church. Instead, we will have the highest of joys, the utmost gladness, and supreme happiness. And our crowns will be eternal. In conclusion, we can have the confidence to have faith with no doubt. We can have wisdom to help us understand and know God's promises in our trials. We can be single-minded church. And we can glory and rejoice in our low position or high position. And when we remain steadfast, and we stand the test, we will receive the crown of life. Church, why can we count it all joy when we encounter various kinds of trials? Because there was one who was perfect, who entered or encountered into various kinds of trials. Jesus, the perfect one who lacked nothing, stooped down to come into our suffering. He suffered in our place so that... We don't have to suffer our greatest trial. The perfect one is perfecting the imperfect to perfection. Jesus, 
the perfect one, who lacked nothing in humble obedience to the Father, suffered to purify the impure. He suffered to make complete the incomplete. He suffered to make the unlovable lovely. He suffered to break the chains of the slavery of sin. He suffered to make orphans, strangers, and aliens children of God. And to give life to the dead and have it abundantly. We can rejoice in our trials, church, because we are being perfected and completed to become more and more like Jesus. Hallelujah. All right, church, uh, let's, would you stand? I want to ask the worship team to come. Let's sing. Let's sing in gratitude and gratefulness because God has given us all that we need to remain steadfast in the midst of our most difficult times. Let me pray. Father, we, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you this morning that it instructs us to persevere and endure by the wisdom that you provide. So we can have hope in the midst of pain and suffering. We can have the knowledge and understanding and how to navigate through these trials to bring glory and honor to your name and how we live godly lives and to put our faith and trust in you alone. We praise you. Be glorified as we sing to you, as we respond in worship for your provision. In Jesus' name, amen.